Hey, if you're guests with us, I want to repeat what Matt said to you. We're glad that you're here with us. I hope that you feel welcome. Um, I hope you feel challenged this morning uh, to take that next step in learning more about Jesus, uh, maybe learning for the first time who Jesus is, but also um, if you've been a Christian for a while, taking that next step in your walk with him. We're excited this year as we bring all of our attention and focus, um, zeroing in even uh, closer to what we've been talking about for the last few months, this idea of being disciples who make disciples. Um, and so we thought, what better way to start out our year than in Second Peter? And so all year we've been walking through so far in 2016, uh, this incredible letter that Peter wrote about discipleship. Um, and so yes, last week David started us into chapter 3, and we're going to uh, continue through chapter 3. We've got a couple more weeks um, of this series as we walk through Second uh, Peter. So if you have a Bible, you can go ahead and open your Bible up. Um, you can turn your Bible on if you have an app and get to Second Peter chapter 3. And we'll be there here in just a moment. Um, I'm excited this morning because it, the text today uh, will handle a pretty heavy issue, but really provide a peace uh, for many of us uh, who are walking with the Lord. So let, let me go ahead and pray for us, and we'll jump in. Father, thank you for you, you. Thank you for your presence. Thank you for who you are. God, thanks for the excitement we're feeling in this place as we have focused in on what you've called us to do, who you've called us to be. Father, thank you that you have put... Uh, an entire community of people right around our church, but also right around us in our workplaces and in our lives. And you've given us the greatest news in the history of the entire world, God, that we get to carry with us each and every day that we are in Christ. And, and God, I pray this morning that we might find some encouragement, that we might look at your word and we might have at least one truth just rest on our hearts, that when we leave this place, we'd be different. But God, that we would be encouraged uh, to represent you well, Father, that we would be encouraged to share this great news that we have with other people. And we give you this prayer, this request, uh, in full expectation that you are capable of doing far more than we ever think or imagine. And we pray for this in Jesus' name. And all God's people said. Hey, um, last week, I, I don't know about you guys, but I, I have not been able to get this image out of my head all week. Uh, David talked to us in, in 2 Peter chapter 3, and he compared the human heart uh, to a loaf of bread. I don't know if you guys remember that. Um, and I was so challenged by that all week, I've just not been able to stop thinking about this idea um, of comparing our heart uh, to bread. And uh, in this walk of discipleship, uh, your heart, if left unguarded, uh, not being intentional, there are three things that can happen to it. The, the first is you would get a hardened heart. Um, your heart would, you, it would get hardened. And that happens when we are overexposed to things uh, of this world and underexposed to the peace that comes from Jesus in the gospel, and the longer we stay away from his people and his truth, the harder that our heart can get. A hardened heart is a difficult thing. It's a very difficult thing to overcome. It's not very difficult to slip into. And all week I've been thinking in my own life, are there areas of my life and my discipleship, my walk with the Lord, that would have caused my heart maybe in some areas to get hard? The second thing that can happen, that's the first thing, your heart can get hardened, and you'll see some of these come up on the screen throughout. Um, the second thing is a softened heart. All right? your, your heart can be soft. And you can be left unexposed. And you might say, well, Rob, I know a lot of people that aren't Christians, and, and yet they have soft hearts. And I know a lot of people that are Christians, but they're not in a discipleship group, and they're not held accountable, and they're not doing all these things that New Hope talks about, and yet they have soft hearts. And David told us last week that 
what happens, what Peter tells us happens, is if we're not stirred up by way of reminder of the truths that we know to be true, and we're not exposing ourselves to this truth, and we're not continually surrounding ourselves with the people that will remind us of this truth, this soft heart will inevitably become hard. It's just a matter of time. It's just a matter of time. He said, but the third way, and the third uh, illustration here with the bread, I got breadcrumbs up here, that's all right. Um, leave them for Matt. Um, is when the loaf of bread is covered and it's protected, it can stay soft. You have a protected heart in this case. And, and he talked about discipleship last week. Peter reminds us of how important it is to be a disciple who is continually being challenged, who's continually being held accountable, that you are not going to be prepared to go into the world to be a disciple maker unless you're also being discipled. What a challenging thought that Peter started us out in, in 2 Peter chapter 3. My question that I've been wrestling with all week is, is my heart protected? Are the areas of my heart protected? How do I know? Because who knows all the details of my heart? Am I trying to keep it hidden and hope that my heart stays soft, but inevitably will get hard? Or have I invited some people into my life, invited some people to speak truth into my life, to ask me honest questions and and to provide honest answers that I might be held accountable in my life? I don't know about you, but I have not been able to shake that thought. And here's why. I think when, when, as Christians, and this is where we're going today, so, so kind of stay with me. As Christians in, in America, a lot of the time we focus on what we've been saved from. And look, that's a great thing. God has done an incredible work to save us from our sin, to save us from his wrath and his punishment. But what I don't think we talk enough about is not only what we've been saved from, but what we have been saved to. You see, you have been saved from sin and from the wrath of God, but you have been saved to a life of purpose, to a life lived on mission, to a life that speaks life into other people. You've not just been saved from something, you have been saved to something. And this is the truth I want you to know. The gospel, the whole gospel, when we really come to understand, it's not just about what God has saved us from, it's also what he has saved us to. I mean, you look at your New Testament, this is all over the place. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul would say, hey, God saved you from your sin so that you could become an ambassador for him. So now you are an ambassador of that truth. You experience that truth, you become a Christian, you, you have that truth in your life, and now God says you're an ambassador for that truth. God didn't just save you from something, but God saved you to something. And I think for many of us, it would do us some good to think, God, I understand I'm grateful for what you have saved me from. But I think we would do a lot of good to bring some of our attention and focus to asking the question, Lord, in my life, specifically, what have you saved me to? Not just what has he saved you from, but what has he saved you to? This is the message of 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 through 9. You see, Peter is talking to a group of Christians that are stuck in neutral. They're kind of in their discipleship walk. They're just kind of in neutral. And he's trying to spark some new life to get them out of neutral and back into drive so that they will continue to move forward in their walk with the Lord. You see, a lot of the Christians, they're unprotected, still soft, but unprotected. And Peter's fear is that it's only a matter of time before your heart gets hardened. And so my goal is to, by way of reminder, help you understand that you need to protect your heart. That your heart cannot stay overexposed to the things of this world and underexposed to the truth of the gospel, I have to, by way of reminder, stir you up so that you get out of neutral and back into drive. And he's going to do that by reminding them of not only what they've been saved from, but what they have been saved to. 
And that's what I want us to walk away with this morning. Yes, what we've been saved from, but also what we have been saved to. Second Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 3 through 7 as Peter begins to talk about what we have been saved from in the form of wrath. He says, knowing this, first of all, that scoffers will come in the last days with scoffing. Following their own sinful desires, they will say, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. For they deliberately overlooked this fact, that the heavens existed long ago and the earth was formed out of water, through water, by the word of God. And that by means of, the, of these, the world that then existed was deluged in the water and perished. But by the same word that spoke them into existence, the heavens and the earth that now exist are stored up for fire, being kept until the day of judgment and the destruction of the ungodly. Now, I don't know if this is just happens to be how we plan this series out, but I feel like each time I've got up here in Second Peter, it's to talk about wrath and judgment. I don't, I don't know if... Hey, Rob, you're up. Okay, here we go. Wrath and judgment. Rob, you're up again. Wrath and judgment. And Rob, a third time. Wrath and judgment. So here we go. It seems as though when you read Second Peter, as I sat down and read it this week, that Peter talks a lot about wrath and judgment. But if you peel back the layers, or let's even use this illustration, if you're zoned in on Second Peter, but you back up to maybe the other epistles, if you back up to the rest of the New Testament, and you've tried to evaluate who is it that spoke the most of wrath and judgment? Who spoke mostly of these things? Was it Peter? Because it sure seems like Peter. Or, or maybe it's the Apostle Paul because he wrote so much of our New Testament. But when you do that, when you step back and say, who is it that spoke the most about judgment and about wrath? You come to realize it was, it was Jesus. Jesus spoke more about wrath and about judgment than anybody else. And, and here's why that's important this morning. Because many people in our culture, they struggle with that. Many people in our culture, we want to pick and choose what parts of Jesus we want to listen to. We want to pick and choose what parts of Jesus' teaching and preaching that we want to adopt and put into our lives. It's a, it's a tendency of all of us. We find the things that we like that make us happy. We like that Jesus is Savior and that he's gracious and loving, but we don't want to accept the fact that he is just and will be a judge as well. Many people, there are a lot of people in America, who believe that God should not judge. He should be a divine cheerleader who turns his back when things go wrong. And he should cheer us on when things are good. But man, when it comes to calling out things, when it comes to judging, when it comes to justice, no, we kind of push back and we reject this idea. And I'm worried, man, there are a lot of Christians in our world who think that you can separate the two, that somehow you can look at the justice of God and you can look at the love and the grace of God and you can choose love and grace and ignore justice. That's something that would concern me. You can't pick and choose what parts of Jesus you want to adopt into your life and what parts you want to reject. I love the way Miroslav Volf said this. He's a Croatian. He grew up. He experienced atrocities that many of us will never experience in our life. And here's what he said about justice. I love this quote. He says, The only person who can make a claim like this, that God is only love and should not judge, is, if, is the person who grew up in the suburbs of America their whole life and never experienced Real injustice. When you watch your family murdered like I did, and, and I left out the details in the quote, the details of what he watched his family go through physically are unbelievable. The way that I did, the only way that you keep from going insane is to know that there is a God who will bring justice. You see, this idea, he said, when he came to America, he would talk about what confused him more than anything else or how, how Christians and how other people believed that somehow if you believed in a God of justice 
somehow you'd be prone to violence. That if you focused on the judgment and the justice of God, that you would be prone to violence. But he said, no, the exact opposite is true. And he said, here's why. Because if, if you don't have justice and you don't have the judgment of God, if these things aren't there, you will be seething with anger. You will be consumed by your anger. And eventually, everybody, this would be true of everybody, eventually there would be something that would push you over the edge and you would take matters into your own hand. Now, I've known many peaceful people in my life. I, I, I grew up with a person who was extremely peaceful. But even he had his limits. That the right tragedy, the right injustice done to this person, this peaceful, loving person, could in fact push him over the edge unless he understood, unless you understand that there is a God who will bring justice and judgment, who will right all wrongs. If we don't believe that, we will inevitably desire to, and inevitably we will act on taking things into our own hands. And so thinking about this idea of justice and maybe some of the issues we have with the judgment and the justice of God, we have really three options when we look at the Bible. There's really three things that we can look at, and when it comes to justice, we can approach it three ways. The first way is to have a hardened heart toward this idea of judgment day, this idea of justice. That, no, you know what? It's not going to happen. No, God's not going to do it, so I'm just going to ignore it. It's not a truth. It's not a reality. God will not judge. God will not bring justice. I'm just going to ignore it. It's not going to be a part of my life. And your heart gets so hardened toward it. Like, you, you want nothing to do with it, so you're just, so I won't even, I'm just going to completely ignore it. You can take option one, and you can become hardened toward the idea of justice. And inevitably, when an injustice is done to you, you will be more prone to taking action into your own hands. Option number two, you can obsess over, and I would say your heart can be hardened. The second thing, you can stay soft and unprotected, not really having a good idea, but you can obsess over justice. And, And this takes the form, honestly, in my generation of social justice activism. You become an activist, and you get excited, and you create your, your sign, and you run outside, and you tell everybody what's wrong. And, and it, look, fighting justice and going after injustice, fighting for justice is not a bad thing. It's an awesome thing. But what I'm watching is that people who obsess over injustice usually get burned out right around the age of 24, 25 years old. They get burned out on it, and they're done because they're not seeing the results that they wanted to see. They're not making the dent that they wanted to Eventually... Their heart goes from soft and unprotected to hardened. And now their heart is hardened. They've gone from somebody who is obsessed over justice and they want to seek justice and fight for justice. And we can do this to realizing that maybe it's not capable, we're not capable of it. And so their heart gets hardened and they say, well, forget it then. There's a third option. When it comes to judgment day or justice and thinking through this, you can believe and accept the truth. You can accept and believe this truth of Judgment Day and justice. And here's why that's important. The person who believes in the doctrine of Judgment Day, it sharpens your sense of justice. It sharpens it. Why? Because you know that God has called us to fight injustices. And so we can. We put our energy into fighting for justice. And, and if, when, we, when we understand that there's a Judgment Day, we know that, hey, we've got to fight against injustice. But here's the difference. It calms us down. It kind of provides a peace. When you understand that there is a God who will come and who will judge and who will bring about justice, you can fight for justice, but you can also understand that even if you don't get to see that justice in this life, you have confidence that it will come in the life to come. You have confidence that there is a God who will come and who will eradicate all injustice, who will right every wrong. And that peace calms you down as you pursue justice. And you don't get the results you want all the time. 
You don't get to see what you wanted all the time. You release the control, and you have a peace about it that keeps you sharp. Peter's audience, they're scoffed at. They're scoffed at for believing in a God of justice. They have people who come and, well, where is he? Why isn't this happening? Look at creation, everything. And so they intellectually come. There's really two people that when you're scoffed at for your belief that God is going to come back, and we believe that Jesus is coming back and he's going to bring justice with him, you get scoffed at intellectually and they come and they say, hey, look at creation. It's not the way that you say it is. Things aren't going the way that you Christians claim that things should go. And Peter responds, he says, intellectually, they're overlooking this one fact that the same God, the same God who spoke creation into being is the same God who spoke and said that he would bring about justice. I like the way one theologian said it. He said this, he says, Peter is saying it. Essentially, look, if you don't believe what the Bible teaches about judgment day, then you are at the same time disbelieving what the Bible says about creation because the same God who created will not leave his creation in injustice. He is coming back to right all the wrongs. And so at the same time denying a God who will bring justice, you are also denying a God who created. But what I found here is this. Peter makes it clear. There's coming a time of judgment, a justice. There's gonna, those who are doing injustice, they are doomed for darkness, for fire, for punishment. That's strong language. This is what we were saved from. You you see, when we read this from the Christian perspective, you get uh, encouragement. Like, look what I was saved from. I can't believe it. I'm so, so grateful to God that he would save me from this. But people that have a difficulty with this, it's not just intellectual, it's personal too. I don't know about you, I have family members who their struggle with this goes something like this. Rob, it's not so much that I read the Bible and this and that. I look at the world around me. And if God is bringing justice, where is he? Where is he? Why is ISIS running rampant in our world? Why does Indianapolis, a top city in our country, in homicide so far in 2016? Why did this happen to this person that I love? Why can't God write that wrong? And it's personal. Where is he? In verses 8 and 9, Peter's going to reveal to us yeah, what God's thinking, why this is happening. And in doing so, he's also going to reveal not just what we're, called, what we're saved from, but what we're saved to. He's going to give us a little bit of insight. So we understand, I've been saved from this wrath, this judgment, but I've been saved to to something else. And that very truth is why God is operating the way he's operating. In verses 8 and 9, Peter reveals this. He says, but do not overlook this one fact. Let me bring you some encouragement. In the midst of all of this injustice that's going on around you, in the midst of the temptation to let your heart become hardened and, and reject the idea where, where just after just a little while, a little more exposure, your heart gets harder and harder. Let me prevent you from doing that by bringing you this little bit of encouragement. Don't overlook this one fact, beloved. Beloved's an endearing term he uses. It's brothers, sisters, people I care about. I love you. And because I love you, I want you to hear this. Don't overlook this one fact. That with the Lord, one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord, he's not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but he's patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. You see, God's time, his idea of time is not like our idea of time. And what we're guilty of, what I'm guilty of, is I filter, I filter injustice through my time grid and not his. All the time. I I see something that has happened that's not right. That shouldn't have happened. That's injustice. That's been done to me. That shouldn't have happened. And God, where are you? And I'm filtering you through my idea of time and not God's idea of time. And Peter's saying, slow down. God's idea of time is not the same 
as our idea of time. God is more concerned with developing your character and sending you out into the world because he doesn't want anybody to perish. And if he were to bring about his justice at this very time, you would not be as happy as you think that you would be. You see, he's not only saved us from his wrath, he has saved us to a life of character development and mission. By saving us from something, he made us a disciple of Jesus. By saving us to something, he made us a disciple maker for Jesus. We are disciples who go and make disciples. While we wait, we are to work toward our own character development. And here's what's fascinating to me. Our culture does not like this. We live in a fast-paced culture, a culture that says, I want things to happen quick. We, have, we love our microwaves. Look, I'm a Hot Pocket fan. I've been out of college for a while now. I still eat Hot Pockets. I love when I'm hungry to pop something in the microwave and be done with it after just a couple minutes. We have developed this insatiable need for speed. Everything has to be done fast. And we begin to impose that on our spiritual life and say, God, you need to operate under this microwave-type culture that we've created over here. You see, God is not going to work that way. Let me just let you know this. God doesn't do a lot of things very fast. He's not in a hurry like we are. He's not busy like we are. He's not stretched thin like we are. He sees from a different perspective than we do. I've used this illustration before. We sit and coach and look out our tiny window. He's, in, he's the pilot. And he sees a perspective that we don't see, but when we're taking off and when we're landing, the two scariest parts of flying... We're looking at our little coach window screaming, come on, pull up, you're going to oh, you're gonna overshoot the runway, or oh no, you're going to land, you're going to hit that building, and we're freaking out and going crazy. God, you need to act different, you need to act different, act faster, act faster. And God's sitting back just calm and peaceful the whole time, getting a good laugh out of us. But God, when he wants to develop your character, when he wants to form you into who he wants you to be, he's not going to do it in a microwave, and he's not going to serve it at a drive through window. See, character development takes time, and that's hard for us. But if you go back to 2 Peter chapter 1, he lists out all of the character development that God wants to do in your life. As you continue to live, he wants to develop you into somebody who has discipline. You remember the, 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 the buckets that we had on all the shelves. He wants to take these things and just mold you, and he wants to shift your thinking and your life. And when he does that, he then wants to send you to go be something for somebody else. He's saying, look, I want to save you so that I can develop your character, but so that other people would not perish. See, God has a heart for people. God has always been all about people. And Peter is saying, you're saved from the wrath of God. You are saved to the mission of God. And when you live the mission of God, you go into the world, to the people you love, to the people that you're surrounded by, and you share the greatest news that has ever been exposed to any period in history. And you have that great news, and God is saying, I want to develop your character to the point where you understand that I am going to bring about judgment. That should create a peace in you, but it should not erase the urgency to go and tell people who Jesus is. I've been thinking about this all week. Understanding Judgment Day, understanding the justice of God has created a peaceful urgency in us. Because we know there's a battle out there. Look, I don't, I'm going to be honest with you. I don't know if you have people in your life that are far from the Lord and you, do you weep over them. Because you know what you've been saved from, and they're not yet saved from it. If you're weeping over the people that are lost in your life, you are grateful for the patience of God. It calms you down. It gives you a sense of peace in the midst of your desire for justice in an unjust world. You develop a heart for people. You know that there's a battle out there. Look, we can, gain, we can spend all of our time gaining a lot of knowledge about God. 
But God is saying here, that's what you've been saved from. What you've been saved to is action. You've got to take that next step. Let me illustrate for you this way. Here's a picture. This is George B. McClellan. Those of you that know history will recognize this name. He was called and referred to as Young Napoleon. Young Napoleon. He's the youngest person to ever be accepted to West Point. 15 years old. Now look, we had some kids come out of New Hope that went to West Point. They weren't 15. Uh, and when they were, they weren't going to West Point. This guy's impressive. 15 years old. He's an incredible leader, planner, and strategist. His greatest gift was to recruit and organize. So when Abraham Lincoln made him the new leader of the Army of the Potomac, he expanded it from 50,000 soldiers to 168,000 soldiers in no time. 168,000. He recruited, organized, kept the morale up. Here's the thing that was so impressive about him when you read about this, is he had soldiers that loved him. He recruited, he trained, they loved him. They loved him. So nobody was surprised in October of 1861 when Lincoln made him the general-in-chief because this guy had amazing talents. Everybody thought, he's going somewhere. This is going to be incredible. He's going to lead, and over and over and over again, he had the experience, he had the knowledge, and now he had the power because his army outnumbered the enemy two to one. Everything is set up for an incredible thing. There was only one problem with George McClellan. He couldn't fight. Couldn't fight. And so he would get everything set up understanding perfectly in our language this morning what he was saved from. He, he got everything done, everything right. And then in those moments where he had to come to take action and to do things over and over and over again, Lincoln would set him up. Lincoln would say, look, you've done everything well. Go, go, go. You've prepared. Go, go, go. You've got to fight. This is the perfect time. And after a year of urging him to take that next step, with all the knowledge and experience that he had, he could not take the next step to fight. Lincoln had to remove him from his position. And he replaced him with this man, many of you will recognize Ulysses S. Grant, far less talented man, but a man that would be willing to fight a beehive. <laughs> the guy would fight anybody, and he did, and the rest is history, as they say. Look, here's the deal. There's a lot that goes into making a disciple of Jesus. Knowledge, coming to understand what you've been saved from, and appreciation, gratitude, all these things are incredible, but there's one thing that if we're missing it, we will fail. And just like McClellan, and he was missing the ability to fight, and he failed, if we are missing the ability to go make disciples, then we will fail. And God is saying, I'm being patient. I'm being patient, waiting for you to take that next step, to go to those people that you're surrounded by that don't know what they need to be saved from yet. But because you have been saved from it, you know good and well what you've been saved from. And now I want them to understand not only what they've been saved from, but what they can be saved to, this life of purpose, this incredible life of purpose. And Peter's saying, God is being patient for that reason. So intellectually, we can sit back and say, God cannot bring about judgment and justice because I don't want him to, because I don't like the way that that sits. And so I'm going to look at creation and all these other things. And Peter will say, that's not true because the same God who claimed to create everything, the same God that did create everything, is also the same God that said he's coming back. And God always keeps his promises. And we can rest assured that he will keep his promise. He says, but maybe it's not intellectual for you. Maybe it's personal and emotional for you. And say, I don't want to believe in judgment day or justice because in my mind, God hasn't moved yet. And I see all this injustice and horrible things going on around me. And Peter would say, mate, I've dealt with intellectual. Now let me deal with your emotional response to justice and judgment day. God is waiting to bring about his justice because he's giving you the opportunity to still save all of your friends and family members. He is waiting because he doesn't want anybody to perish. He doesn't want anybody to live without him. And it's that desire that creates a peaceful motivation inside of us, a peaceful urgency 
to go to the world and tell people about Jesus. So let me apply this two ways as a church. I want to bring application to us as a church right now. New Hope Christian Church, Whitestown, Indiana, the fastest growing town in the state of Indiana. That is a title we will not keep forever. There are people all around us. So as a church, how do we take what Peter's talking about? Why God is being patient with New Hope? What do we do in the patience of God as a church? And then I want to challenge you as an individual disciple, something you can take home with you as you walk out today, something you can think about, something you can, you can dwell on in the days to come. As a church, there's three things. You've seen these these things listed uh, many places, but I want to tell you how they fit. The first thing is, as a church, in the patience of God, we want to engage the lost. And what that means is we want to help people understand what they're being saved from. The wrath of God, the punishment of God, darkness, separation from Him forever. We desperately want people to understand what they've been saved from. We want to equip the church. We want to help people understand what they've been saved to. So we equip the church, helping everybody understand not just what you've been saved from, but what you have been saved to. So we want to engage the lost. We want to equip the church. The last thing is we want to encourage those who are hurting. And as we encourage the hurting, we want to stir everybody up by way of reminder what you've been saved from and what you've been saved to. Now as an individual, this is where it gets difficult. I have this peaceful urgency in my life. I just talked to a family member yesterday. When I hung up the phone, I was just thinking about the sermon, and I got choked up. Because I just kept thinking, man, they don't know Jesus. This is hard. This is difficult. I've got this burning desire for these people that are all around me. This burning desire inside of me for them to come to know Jesus. Because this is not a game that we play. To have a stage that we stand on. It's not a place that we come to so we can sit in a seat and mark it off a list and go home. I'm just being honest with you. If you've experienced this truth, it changes you. It completely and totally changes you. Let me illustrate it for you this way. If I, can't, if I got here late today, let's just say I got here late, okay? And uh, the greeting time was, Matt sang, it was awesome, and Larry did the communion meditation, things were good, and greeting time was over, and all of a sudden the music ends, and no one comes out to preach, and about nine or ten minutes later, I come running out on stage, kind of winded, I'm like, oh, man, I'm sorry I'm late. Let me tell you why I'm late, though. I was driving from Brownsburg to, to church, where I live in Brownsburg, and on 267, it's kind of crazy, and uh, I got a flat tire. Right, so I'm telling you why I'm late. I, I got a flat tire. I got out, and I'm changing the tire, and the lug nut goes spinning into the street. And so I'm like, all right, I got to get the lug nut. And I run to get the lug nut. I look up, and a semi going 70 just drills me. I'm telling you. I, I flew 100 yards forward. Well, then the truck hit me again, and he wasn't sure if he hit me. I'm telling you. So he put it in reverse, and he backed up, and he nailed me again. I'm telling you. And then, and then he kept going. But guys, I just remembered, I'm telling you, the words of my high school basketball coach, walk it off. So I got up. <laughs> Finished changing my tire. I drove to New Hope, and here I am, guys. I made it. I'm here. You'd be sitting here thinking, something's just not right about that story. (laughs) Something's just not right. You know, if you got hit by a force that powerful, you'd look different. You'd look different. If something that powerful hit you, you would never be the same, Rob. See, I hope you see where I'm going. The same thing is true there. If you've been hit by the truth of the gospel really hit, if you really know what you've been saved from, you just can't be the same. You can't. You don't walk away the same as you were. When you really get what Jesus did for you, you have to go forward different. And Peter's saying, man, when the gospel hits you, you know I'm saved from this, but I'm saved to this. And friends, if you're not living what you've been saved to, I've got to wonder, do you really know what you've been saved from? 
Do you know the power that hits you? When you come up out of the waters of baptism, that Holy Spirit comes to live inside you. Do you know what that power feels like? That peace. That urgency to tell people about Jesus. It changes you forever. So as an individual, let me ask you these two questions. In an effort, genuinely, from my heart, not to be rude, to prevent your heart from getting hard. Let me ask you these individual questions. Do you have a burden, a burden on your heart for the lost, those far from God? And if so, who? On the inside of my Bible, every time I buy a new Bible each year in January, I buy a new Bible and I write the names of people on the inside cover that don't know the Lord that I'm just burdened for. And, and I, I just want to see it consistently so I can pray for them. And it creates more of a burden, man. I just remember, God, you saved me from this, but you saved me to this. i got to go live on mission. Do you have that burden? If not, you need to stop where you're at. Red flag, stop. Do a gut check and say, why do I not have that burden? Do you know the force that has hit you if you're in Christ? Are you in Christ? Are you a Christian? You experience that burden. Next question. Is there anything, a preference, a comfort, an opinion that you're not willing to give up to reach that person? Now, I'm not saying water your doctrine down. I'm not, none of that. So don't hear that. Don't email me. I don't want to hear it. I'm saying your preferences. I like this. I want this. I, this is for me, 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 me. Are you willing to give up your preferences and your comforts and your opinions to go reach that person that has created a burden in your heart? We have got to come to the place where we understand what we've been saved from and what we've been saved to as we patiently wait for the justice and judgment of God, we live on mission. And we give up everything that we have to give up in an effort to make people come to understand what they've been saved from. If this is the great good news, then everyone deserves to hear it. And I pray that as a church, we will never stop engaging the lost, equipping the church, encouraging the hurting. I pray that as an individual, that I will never get so used to ministry so used to working in a church that I lose my burden for the lost. I pray that I will never leave my heart so unexposed to discipleship and accountability that over time it gets hard. It gets hard, and I forget what I've been saved to. I pray for you, genuinely pray for you, as we move forward as a church, that you would be someone who has a burden for the lost. And when you come here, you feel equipped to then go, that you would come to understand not just what you've been saved from, but what God has saved you to. A life lived on mission.